Gabriel, thank you for making it here to Studio City. You're coming from Venice, right? No, I, I came from uh, West Adams by USC. Oh, nice. Oh, that's right. You were just mentioning that you live by USC. Uh, we met on Venice at the uh, VVMC uh, third Sunday of the month, right? That's, right? that's correct, yeah. You were on an electric vehicle, but it wasn't a motorcycle. Yeah, well, I think there's still kind of a gray area in that field. Uh, it's called a, a Huck motorbike. And uh, because of the speed and the way that the laws are coming out because of electric vehicles, it's kind of like a gray area between electric bicycle, moped, moped on steroids, because, it, you know, it's 72 volts, so it literally goes about 50 miles per hour, potentially. Oh, you're, you're, you're potentially. But is yours limited right now or? Yeah, it's limited. Okay. Yeah, I, actually, it's funny because th this is, I'm like at 110 episodes. But episode, I believe number six was Super 73. And I spoke to Michael and we were talking about how, and this was three years ago, that we were talking about how the laws were, were weird, where if it's like, if it's 31 miles an hour and doesn't have pedals, it's a motorcycle. But if it's 30 miles an hour and you add pedals, it's a bicycle. Or, or a motorized bicycle, which is different because on a motorized bicycle, uh, you only have to register with the DMV a single time ever, never again. Mm. No insurance ever, no matter what. And uh, no registration per year or anything like that. And so, uh, you know, it's not, you can make it a bicycle because I don't think a lot of police departments really know the distinction between whether something's a motorized bicycle or a bicycle. And that's kind of what the gray area is right now on electric uh, bicycles or electric uh, motorbikes. When did that come into effect? It's all very kind of uh, in flux. I think I've been riding electric bicycles for a good uh, about 12 years now. Uh, and uh, throughout the years, you know, they came up with class one, class two. Now they have class three in terms of the kind of bicycle it rides, uh, kind of uh, whether it has pegs, the weight, the power ratio, the total speed. Uh, but uh, it's kind of, uh, it's an ongoing issue. And I think it's just a lot of people dealing with the fact that bicycles are becoming a better way to, uh, to use transportation. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I would think so. Oh, it's fun. It's a it, lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's more convenient. It's easier. Uh, do you know what the market share is on, on e-bikes or... I mean, I know it's not your expertise. Yeah, like you're, no. just, you're just a fan, but I'm sure it's rising. I was actually talking also to, um, I spoke to them last month, Cake. Oh, with them. beautiful bikes. Beautiful bikes. Yeah. And, and the way that he was telling me how it's growing in Europe uh, for, for the service industry, like contractors, plumbers, electricians, they're building like little carts for it. You jump on your bike, get through traffic, you can see more clients, you can handle more things. They're getting more business orders than and personal use orders, which I found interesting because I, I don't think that's the case here at all in the United States yet. Right. And my experience is that it is going to become like that. I think what I've noticed from other cities like New York, uh, Washington, D.C., and L.A. to a lesser extent now, if you need to get somewhere that's four miles away and you're dealing with traffic, whether it's morning or afternoon when people are getting home, taking an electric bicycle will get you there a lot quicker. A lot. No waiting in line or waiting in traffic. Go right to the front of the line. I mean, they're more narrow than motorcycles. Right. Uh, and, you know, you have bike lanes. Yeah. Yeah, and motorcycles can't go on the bike lanes, even though 
sometimes people yeah <laughs> sometimes it's necessary for safety you know um you you were telling me you're an attorney you're practicing law what what kind of law are 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 you do you do what kind of attorney are you right so i've been licensed with california state bar since uh 20 uh, year 2000 actually uh so 2000 uh, and uh, I initially started off as a criminal defense attorney, and I did that for maybe five to seven years, and then I really went into uh, kind of civil litigation uh, and personal injury, and what that involves when you have a background in criminal defense is I started doing a lot of civil rights cases, so police misconduct, excessive force, wrongful death, so, you know, I had cases where, you know, basically people get killed by the police, whether on purpose or on accident, yeah. And so that developed a practice of uh, really kind of going after municipalities, like cities. Like it's kind of an area where a lot of lawyers really don't know what you need to do uh, in terms of perfecting your claim. These cases take a long time compared to like a typical uh, fender bender uh, car accident case. Yeah. Well, what's the average time for one of those cases to... Well, I could take. It depends. Right now, um, I think I mentioned this when I when I first met you. Uh, there's a case I have in, out of Palm Springs. Yeah. Uh, and this guy, you know, he died because he called the police and the police showed up because somebody was breaking into his house. And uh, for whatever reason, and it's all on video body cams and it's it's all on the internet. The police opted to assist the person who broke through this guy's home at 2 a.m. Private community fenced house. Uh, and basically asked this uh, illegal bounty hunter if he had his uh, fatal cover, which means, in police speak, if uh, you're going to use uh, less than deadly force, like a taser, you want to have someone who has fatal cover. And if you look at the uh, footage of the police body cam camera, within a minute, essentially, of arriving at this home and seeing in the police video footage a door just smashed with a sledgehammer yeah. 2, 2 a.m. and hearing a, just a loud alarm the officer goes upstairs and sees this guy dressed up in like just bulletproof gear all kinds of things pointing a gun at this guy this is his dad his two kids uh, and you hear the guy just saying you know get the fuck out of my house get the fuck out of my house which is what i think every red-blooded american would say if you're at yeah. your house and uh, you're in your boxers and someone comes breaks the front door with a sledgehammer at 2 a.m. yeah 30 seconds after that officer do you have my fatal cover bounty hunter's like uh okay and he's pointing the gun right at the the decedent and the cop is just like you're going to get tased not asking questions, not trying to figure out what's going on, not de-escalating the situation, essentially just kind of uh, making acts first and choosing to figure out what's going on after the fact, right? So he shoots the taser, the officer does, upstairs. This guy's uh, staircase landing. Meanwhile, the decedent's in his bathroom, in yeah. his boxers, with, with the knife. Get out of my house. Get him house, which you're allowed to do. Right. And... Uh, he says, the officer does, going to get tased, and he holds the taser like he's in some kind of hip-hop video. It's like sideways, yeah, which is a problem because if you know anything about uh, post-officer standards and trainings, post-sworn officers, every police officer in the state of California has to be sworn right, uh, and trained before they're sworn as uh, peace officer standards and training. 
you're not supposed to hold the taser sideways like that. You're supposed to hold it upright because it's got two pins in the very front. Right. And those pins are designed to hit kind of the middle mass of a person. And if those two needles don't connect, it's going to probably uh, confuse the person once you, you know, shoot it, right? So the officer shoots it sideways like, you know, he's hip-hop or whatever. And one needle goes in, one needle goes out. Guy falls up, falls down, gets back up. What? Are you serious? That's literally what it says. And then the officer says, shoot. And then the guy who has his fatal cover just shoots him dead. That case is more complicated. <laughs> yeah. That case is a little bit more complicated because then what happened after the fact is that the officers are trying to make sense what happened and they eventually uh, arrest the, uh, the bounty hunter who was helping the police officer and who basically complied with his orders. Right, who took a command, yeah. Yeah, and now he's getting prosecuted in uh, Riverside County for uh, homicide. Because there's an ongoing criminal case and there's constitutional rights that every person has if you're being charged with a the crime as opposed to what a civil case is which is what i have with that case that case is going to take way longer than a typical case i think that well yeah yeah i, I mean, mean there are police officers bounty hunters uh families are involved there's right well and more more to the fact is that uh there's going to be probably in the criminal case uh various decisions by a jury by a judge that could have a f- findings and orders that affect a civil case also yeah right like it's something called collateral estoppel where when an issue is litigated and obviously in a homicide case there's going to be various issues litigated um i've spoken to the attorney for the guy who's the uh defendant in the criminal case that they're trying to get the officers to testify in the criminal case you know in the preliminary hearing that officer was already saying i plead the fifth yeah you know what i mean so it's kind of uh, in flux, but you know that's kind of like a outlier. That's extru- yeah, 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 yeah. A uh, typical case on a civil rights case, you're looking at maybe uh, two to three and a half years. They take a while because there's so many elements on them. There's a, normally uh, in a case that involves a municipality called a motion for summary judgment. Uh, I think if you just heard the issues with uh, Fox News versus Dominion and the settlement that just came out a few days ago. Haven't heard it. Yeah, so I guess Dominion sued Fox News for defamation uh, in federal court, I think in uh, Washington, not Washington, Delaware, I think. And uh, before the opening arguments actually started, they settled for $734 million. Fox News agreed to pay Dominion, the voting systems, because of all of the issues with Trump saying that the vote was I, I actually just read that he's, he's being sued multiple times yeah yeah he's got it yeah 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 I, I was just reading that well the hardest part in these kinds of cases uh, is that, that, he, that he swore that he, they couldn't his claim was legit that nobody could prove him wrong and and then they're, they're also suing him for that and then they proved him wrong and now they're all, that's now they got a five million dollar lawsuit as well well no I think that's I think that's a related issue. You're talking about the Mike Lindell. Ah, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, he, he basically, I guess, made an offer, and then an arbitrator ruled that the person proved that Mike Lindell was wrong, so now the arbitrator ordered Mike Lindell to pay $5 million. What I'm referring to is uh, the, the voting companies uh, that essentially were used for the election during Trump versus Biden. Uh, Fox News did a whole campaign about how they, these machines are broken, they're basically giving votes to Biden instead of Trump, none of which was based on any facts whatsoever. And so Dominion 
sued uh, for defamation of their company, saying that Fox News knew it was not untrue. There was a huge motion of summary judgment there. And in that case, which is not what you normally see, the plaintiff, the person suing the defendant, actually filed the motion for summary judgment, which is not what you would typically see, is you'll see a defendant filing a motion for summary judgment. In my uh, police cases, what you'll see is uh, the police department or the city for the police department will file a motion for summary judgment for something called qualified immunity or saying that the officer didn't know what he was doing was illegal, and because of that, he gets a pass, and the case should not be decided by a jury. And that's a very hard uh, hard. A hurdle to overcome. A lot of cases get lost on a motion for summary judgments because of qualified immunity. Uh, but you know, it, it happened in that case. In the, in the which sucks because uh, civilians never get that. Yeah, well, it's hard. But but Dominion did. They 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 had evidence yeah. that proved that Fox News actually knew that there was nothing wrong with the voting machines. Yeah, and I think that's probably why the case settled for seven hundred and thirty-four million or something like that. That's fucking huge money, man. What, what, do, what do you think of, uh, I, I'm sure you've seen the videos on YouTube where you see people going to the police stations and kind of like, not provoke, but like, you know, go to cops, wait for cops to come to them and say, I don't answer questions, you can't talk to me like that. Uh, have you seen those videos? Oh, yeah. It, and, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, obviously, the, I think biggest issue that I see with those kinds of videos are people who just lack diplomacy. Yeah, is uh, you know, regardless of what your rights are, uh, when you're approaching a person with a gun, it's probably good advice to be diplomatic, right? Uh, not angry, uh, but you absolutely have rights not to talk to the police officer. You have constitutional rights, and if the officers ignore those rights, you can sue them. Now, are you going to spend thirty, forty thousand dollars on a case that's going to take two and a half, three years, so that you can win a dollar? Yeah. And, and, and that, that, that's, that's kind of where I was going with the question. Why do they do it? Well, I mean, they, they do it for the fans and the followers and whatever. And, you, and you, like you said, there's some. And then I also want you to make the valid points of how important, like, you know, what, what rights we sh- what's the positive we should take away from this. But what's their intention? They're going to fuck around with this for two, three years, try to make a buck or two? Well, I think most people don't realize that that's involved. I mean, I think what happens oftentimes is a lot of huge verdicts get uh, – publicize on social media and people think, well, I was wrong by the police. That means I could win. Well, potentially you can, but uh, every case involves two uh, parts. There's liability, which maybe you'll win liability. Uh, but are 12 people, or if you're in federal court, are eight people going to say that you are owed a million dollars because the officer slapped you? No. And are you going to get a lawyer who's going to spend his or her money uh you know, litigating the case for three years just so that you can win a dollar and they can be out of $30,000 for the case. So I think people don't know the complexity and nuances of actually filing a lawsuit against like a city who employs a police officer. Uh, If they did, they would understand the risk. What a lot of people don't know, for example, is if you, even if you're a plaintiff today in California, if this is just a car accident, if you lose that case, then the uh, defendant can actually get a court order for the costs, not of the attorney's fees, but of all the costs they spent in that case. And a typical case could be anywhere from uh, five to $15,000. It's a straight-up fender-bender case. You can end up having to pay the person who hit you because maybe you didn't want to accept you know, the BS offer from the insurance company for like four $5,000. Now you have a $20,000 judgment. And it's the thing I always spend a lot of time with all my clients. I always say, 
you know, I love going to trial. Trial is fun. I feel like, you know, I'm a five years old doing show and tell all over again. But I'm not going to be the one that gets a court order that has an actual judgment collecting interest for $20,000 because you wanted a million dollars that is not realistic. Right. And that happens in every kind of case, including civil rights cases, uh, personal injury cases. It's it's a real risk to any litigant. Uh, I, 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 again, I know it, you're not an expert to throw numbers out there, but... From the cases we do hear about that, oh, this guy got like two million and three million and four million. What percentage do you think is over a million versus not even under a hundred thousand? Uh, well, I mean, if you're referring to cases that actually go to trial and get verdicts, I think the far majority of most verdicts today are way, way below a million dollars. Yeah, uh, you just don't get any press attention. But every single day, there's every single city probably. Dozens and dozens of verdicts that are maybe like 20,000, 30,000 um, that no one's ever going to really talk about. It's not going to be on social media. But for that actual person who felt wronged and who had to go against that guy who caused an accident or it's his insurance company and they were saying, oh, it's your fault. You caused the accident. Meanwhile, they have hospital bills for like $5,000. They have a loss of wages for another $5,000. They have you know, just this uh, gut anger of being wronged and no one believing you. And sometimes, and I've seen it many times, even cases that I didn't do as well as I wanted to, just there's a very therapeutic healing in going through a, a civil jury trial. You know, like there's, I've seen it many times in my cases where the jury would like hug my client. You know, after like two and a half years of like everyone saying it's her fault, it's her fault, the jury's just like, you know, I'm glad we can help. And the clients just feel relieved. Wow, even, that's, I, that's deep. Yeah. I, I've even seen my that's clients deep. shake hands with the defendants, the people they're suing. Yeah. You know, and that, that just shows you that it's a testament to the healing power of the civil justice system if it's done right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's I've never even thought about that, like how powerful people can just kind of shake hands afterwards. But that doesn't happen all that often either, right? Well, it doesn't happen a lot, uh, especially if I lose a case. If the yeah. client loses, then the client's kind of mad at the world still. So, right. But, uh, but it, you know... It, but it, somebody it, always loses, right? Either yeah. the other side or this side. There's always a loser. Right, right, unless you settle mid-trial, which I've done also. But uh, I think the reality is that there's something to be said about having a system that, first of all, for most people who are not attorneys, is very kind of alien. It's very weird and different. But uh, when they actually participate in it, it's kind of more uh, primitive and more uh, ancestral than you, most of us expect. I mean, you basically are telling a group of strangers uh, to decide this for us because a judge can't do it. The insurance company for the defendant can't do it. The the plaintiff, no one's going to listen to the plaintiff. Plaintiff's lawyer's not going to do it. So you are putting your faith and your fate in the hands of these people who don't know you from Adam. Yeah. And they're like, I think you're, I think you're right. And this is what the harm to you is valued at. And when it is done right, I think it's very, very powerful. 
I, I joke I joke around. It's just a joke with my wife every now and then. And I say, I wish I had a jury just to like, because this argument's <laughs> going nowhere. Yeah. I wish there was a jury here where where it, they would just, I could just feed them this and you feed them that and they just make a decision. Because yeah. this is stupid. Like, you know, because it gets frustrating. You, you get into, you know, silly arguments or conversations with anybody, with a partner, or with business, with uh, you know, your significant other, et cetera. Right. So... Anyways, I always thought like a jury thing, but yeah, that that would be a, an amazing reward, especially if it goes your way. Right. Yeah, and even clients who have lost, there's I think there's still kind of like a an understanding because typically when you get to that point where the jury is actually deciding the case, you've gone through the whole trial, they're in the room deliberating. What's going on is the client probably nine times out of ten has already said, "I don't want this amount of money. I want more. I want more." And, you know, sometimes um, some clients, uh, you know, do see more value in their case, don't see the holes in their case, uh, and decide to opt to let the jury decide. And I've been pleasantly surprised and unpleasantly surprised. You know, I've gotten verdicts that I did not believe I can get. And then I've lost cases where I thought it was just uh, unbelievable. It was just like complete injustice. But that whole process, it's, I love it still. I, I uh, a quick story. Um, my my ex had a lawsuit with her company that she used to work for, and um, anyways, it was going back and forth, back and forth. They settled it. We were already separated, right? But it goes back and forth, back and forth. She gets some money. End the story. And I never thought about it. This was probably like fifteen years ago, sixteen years ago. At that time, Sprint. This is when Sprint was like a strong cell phone company i was buying phones and flipping phones you know and uh, the guy calls me up and he's like hey i want to buy your phone you know i was like all right no problem he goes can you meet me at the sprint store in beverly hills i said yeah no problem so we meet at the sprint store and he's all okay let's just activate and i'll pay you the guy was in a suit dressed nice you know and i was like all right so i called the uh, sprint service and you know they're all oh, thank you for calling sprint blah blah, blah. and the uh, name and i'm all roberto valderrama and they're like oh, okay verify your pin and the guy looks at him and he goes I know you. And I was like, you don't know me. I'm not related to Wilma Valderrama. Like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Anyways, let me finish the call. So anyways, I activate the phone. The guy pays me. And he goes, I know you. And I go, no, you don't. He goes, yeah, your ex's name is blah, blah, blah. And you have a son named blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> what's up, dude? What's going on? Like, what's the chances from the valley? I'm going to go to Beverly Hills, sell this guy phone, and he knows me. Long story short was he was the defending attorney of the company oh, wow. that, that settled. And you know what he did? He looked at me and he goes, look, I was going to call you because I heard you guys were getting separated. And I want to see if I can get some dirt on your ex, but I never called you. And I was like, oh, well, thanks, Dick. You know? <laughs> and then he goes and he looks at me and he says, uh, she could have got so much more money. Oh. FYI, she could have got so much more money. She settled for less. And I was like... Anyways, so from that moment, I was like, fuck, man, this whole legal system is just a big fucking negotiation. And now, you know, doing these interviews and talking to more people and more attorneys and everything else, I, I hear sometimes there's like, you know, attorneys have these reserves of like, all right, you can sell this for 100K, but like try to close it at 10, you know, and, and there's really that space, you know, depending on the case, obviously, you know, what's, what's your thoughts on, on that story? Well, no, I understand what you mean by that. And the reality is that, well, first of all, no one really knows the potential results. But they always have, and when you say reserves, you're 
talking about usually the insurance company that sets out a certain amount for the law firm. You know, the way it's supposed to work is that uh, the person who causes a car accident has insurance, and that insurance company has a fiduciary duty, meaning that they have to uh, act in the best interest of the actual driver who caused the accident instead of their own. Right. That's the theory, and that's the ideal. That's not how it works. The way it works is that uh, insurance companies and their adjusters are incentivized to screw over little car accidents and kind of uh, make sure that every other potential claimant, any other potential accidents against this insurance company, knows that we'll fight tooth and nail even if our client is totally at fault. Uh, is that a breach of fiduciary duty? I would argue that it is. I would argue that the insurance company is breaching that fiduciary duty. So what do you have to kind of act like there is a level playing field and all the lawyers are acting according like they should? Well, then what you have is you have all these law firms and attorneys who just do insurance defense, who basically say the guy who caused the accident, that's my client, that's my client. Yeah. In my experience, and I've been doing this for 20 years, the person, the defendant, the person who has the insurance company who caused the car accident never actually knows what's going on in the actual case, whether it's before a lawsuit's filed against them or after. And that's a problem because it's very common for the insurance companies to kind of hide the ball in terms of what the uh, insured driver who caused the accident actually said and did at the accident, at the interview. You know when you call the insurance company, this call is being recorded. They hold that evidence like you would not believe. They really yeah, hide the ball. And... I'll be in a lot of depositions where I'm deposing the car, the guy who drive the car accident. I'm like, listen, man, I know you're insured and I'm not trying to sue you for everything. Do you know that? Do you know that I'm not trying to take you for everything you're worth? Like, uh, no, I didn't know that. Did you know that I offered this amount, which is way less than your insurance policy? Did you know that? The attorney's like, objection. I'm like, this is a deposition. I'm asking what he, his knowledge, his basis of knowledge about this case. Do you know that I wanted to settle before ever filing a lawsuit? They never, ever know. What's going on is that uh, the reality, in my opinion, is that the law firm is really uh, conflicted in not really serving the best interest of their client, which is the person, yeah. and essentially doing the bidding of the insurance company nine times out of ten. I mean, I, sometimes there's exceptions, but for the most part, the attorneys hardly ever talk, the insurance attorneys ever talk to their clients, never know the struggle the fear, the anxiety of having a quote-unquote lawsuit, uh, being sued out of house and home and job and all that stuff. They never... Fucking intimidating, man. It is. And they and I asked them personally, and all I get from the attorney for the insurance company, uh, a.k.a. for the driver at fault, is, oh, uh, yeah, um, objection, uh, not likely to lead to admissible evidence, calls for speculation, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like... Do you even know what's wrong with the person you hit? Like my client, do you do you think they're faking? They're like, uh, no. Do, do you know how much money my client, how much money she spent because of the, the pain from this car accident? No. Do, you you admit you hit her, right? Yeah. And, and her car is completely messed up, right? Yeah. And, you know, you, you get metal stronger than flesh, right? You're good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like... They, they have so many games. What they're trying to do is, um, you know, there's so much uh, insurance lobbies that basically try to make every plaintiff into like a fraudster, a faker, a malingerer. Right. And, and uh, unfortunately, that's what a lot of lawyers like myself have to 
fight against, you know, these ideas that people are really going to risk a lot of financial issues. People are going to really spend a lot of money and time and potentially have to pay the person who caused a car accident. Yeah. But that's, that's the reality of the system we're in right now. Question. Uh, how much does a, but, you know, because you always you always hear like online and social media posts and everything, open an LLC, open an LLC, put everything under the LLC, keep it separate from you, this, that, that. If you have your LLC, uh, you know, develop your business credit. Once you get your business credit, start putting everything there. And if you get in a situation where, because, you know, I've, I've heard cases where, you know, the 85-year-old woman hits a biker, you know, and her insurance policy is only 50 grand, but she has a paid off house. So they go straight for the house, right? Uh, and well, in that case, they went straight for the house, and they take the house. Does an LLC protect you? Do you and would yeah? Well, so that's uh, kind of a complicated question, and the reason it's complicated is because uh, LLCs come in every shape and size. Uh, it, you know, there's something called piercing the corporate veil. Typically, there is corporate uh, protection from liability to a person personally, uh, but if we're talking about someone who personally did something. Uh, but they have all their assets in an LLC, uh, LLC or, or some trust. kind of structure, an entity. Uh, it can protect them if they actually do it uh, not just for the lawsuit or just not just in name only. If you actually follow, uh, you know, corporate minutes and actually do the actual difficult hard work of, you know, making a statement every year, filing every year, uh, taxes, all that, then it will provide a certain level of protection for sure. Uh, if anything, it's going to make uh, any asset you have in an entity a little bit more difficult to kind of go after if they have a case. Now, it really depends on the type of case. If it's like a negligence type of case, like someone did something wrong, it's going to be harder. If it's like something someone did personally, like someone stuck a gun at you and shot you in the leg, then it might be easier. But it's going to provide a level of legal protection. Uh, the, the attorneys who are suing you are going to have to go through a lot more jumps. Right. And, 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 I, and I, am, I am talking about exactly that. I'm talking about a fucking accident. I'm talking about, like, you know, whatever. You're changing, you're, you're handing a water bottle to your kid and, and you were reversing or forward and you, you hit somebody. You know, now they're like, I'm going to take your property and your motorcycles and your life, you know. Like a, a, a LLC will give some kind of protection. Not a, this is why he's here today. Well, it's not just me. It's many, many attorneys. But uh, be, because of what we spoke about earlier today about um, the fiduciary duty the insurance companies have for their insureds, yeah, and when they breach it, uh, if they if they breach it, you can actually sue the insurance company for a bad faith coverage against the person who caused the accident. And, and there's also something about. Uh, actually opening the insurance policy. Uh, so it's very common for lawyers like myself, and I've done it many times, where somebody will have like a fifteen or 30000 minimal policy, and we try to just get whatever we can on that policy, and I'll tell my clients this is all they have. But, you know, if they choose not to settle with you, and it's not them, the driver, it's the actual insurance company, and we give them an opportunity to settle for $14,999, and they have a 15000 policy, and then they say no because we think your client's faking or it really wasn't that bad or, you know, what they always do in every case, essentially, except catastrophic cases, right? Just like uh, cases where they want to make out the plaintiff like someone who's faking their injuries. And we, I go ahead and file the lawsuit, and I go ahead and go to 
jury trial and get a verdict for substantially more, attorneys like myself, we don't actually go after the driver. If it's no. like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar, we go after the insurance company because we gave them an opportunity to settle the case and comply with their fiduciary duties, what they promised. Remember, insurance is just a promise. If yeah. something happens, I promise I'll take care of you. And if they breach that, then the actual driver has a claim against the insurance company, which I can just get the driver, the person I sue, to assign it to me. And then I can sue on his behalf the actual um, insurance company, in which case I think would be a stronger case because then you right. have a jury trial, Joe Smith against Allstate, which, you know. I, I always advise people to up their insurance policies. Oh, yeah. I think it's smarter to do that if you have a lot of assets. Can, can you can you break that down? Well, so, you know. You, even, even if you don't have assets, if you're on a motorcycle, up your insurance. Right. Well, I mean, if we're talking about uh, liability insurance, you, you always want a good amount. Uh, the reality with the motorcycle is you're not going to really do a lot of damage to anybody on a motorcycle crash except right. your own. So if you want to get bodily injury or bodily coverage for yourself, obviously that's always good advice. Um, but in terms of protecting yourself from any kind of accident you get into, you always want to have a good coverage. I mean, I think minimal policy of a hundred thousand is probably good advice. Minimal, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's usually what I tell people. Yeah, that's what I tell people. And and uh, an uninsured motorist. That's the other oh thing. yeah, definitely. That's, yeah, but that's like I I've witnessed. Uh, you probably don't know this. My listeners know this, but I used to work for Harley Davidson years ago. And and you know, you when you sell a lot of bikes, you see accidents. And a lot of the accidents were, you know, bad coverage. Uh, you know, people didn't know what to do when they got into an accident. People didn't know it was a hit and run. People didn't have the right coverage. People had the minimum coverage. And people get fucked out of a lot of deals. Again, you only hear a few of the, whoa, somebody made money. But most of the time, people get fucking pretty fucked. They get, they lose their bike. They're, they're fucked up physically. They have a, a crazy amount of hospital bills. Um and a lot of this could have been prevented if they went to a, a good attorney and had, you know, decent coverage and if they didn't settle for less, you know. Well, you know, one thing that I've seen from my experience is the number one thing I think a person can do to essentially strengthen their claim is not necessarily get the lawyer right away. That may sometimes work against you. Uh, what I see almost most people do wrong is not actually just take out their phones after the accident and just record everything, uh, document it, photograph it. Uh, where's the place of rest of the vehicle? Everything of, uh, of, of the car accident or even the person's character? or Yeah, I, I've had uh, cases where the stronger the case is when, you, uh, especially now that every officer has a body cam and the police are called, but many accidents the police are not called, but the stronger cases have all the physical evidence at the scene of the incident, especially when you're talking about um, things such as like tire transfer or paint transfer, skid marks, uh, debris fields. These are things that no one's really thinking about because they're so caught up in the emotions of basically their lives being disrupted, being involved in something they didn't plan on, whether you caused it or not. Uh, the number one thing you can do is take out your smartphone after the accident and, you know, you could start on video or start on your photographs and just photograph the actual damage, the actual roadway, the actual roadway right where the cars contacted each other. Because in every case I've ever done, I, I'll take those photographs where people did that. And I'll enlarge the photographs. You'll always see evidence. You'll see skid marks. You'll see, uh, you know, part of the motorcycle's paint right on the side of the car, even though the guy was like, that guy never hit me in that area. Well, then... 
why is your blue car red from his red motorcycle, even though the motorcycle maybe had a point of rest that was like 15, 20 feet away? Yeah. So that's the number one thing. The number one thing is to document everything in your photographs at the scene. And then also you have to write down uh, your recovery process. You know, the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about a claim if they're involved in a motorcycle accident is that California law absolutely compensates you for pain, for suffering, for inconvenience, for anxiety, for loss of enjoyment of life, for loss of use of the motorcycle. All of those things are separate things that the law will compensate you for. But the insurance company that you're calling to say, hey, I didn't work or I can't ride my motorcycle anymore, even though that's the only thing I use to get to work, they're not going to tell you all of these things. Yeah, My fear of you know, my fracture, having a fracture, not being able to do what I do. Every single one of those things basically will go away if you don't write down day um, day two, day five, uh, week five, month three. If you don't show in a journal, in a phone app, notes app, your rehabilitation process, it's going to be hard for you to be, be able to tell that to the lawyer that uh, your attorney has to sue on your behalf, to tell that to the jury that has to decide what the value is of pain and suffering. I mean, that's essentially the biggest component of a case. Yeah. Why do you think people don't document stuff so well? It, it, it's, it's amazing how, how uh, and I'll just give you an example. Uh, my, my mom was in a hospital not too long ago, and at, in the middle of the night, she had like an incident with the nurse. And she's like, ah, I'm, I'm going to make a complaint. I'm going to make a complaint. I was like, let's just write it down and submit it. Because... If we don't write it down and submit it, it's just going to be what she says versus what you say. And then they're just going to kind of like nothing's documented. But if we start documenting it, and, and this is something recently that I started doing, you know, and, I, and I'll be honest, where I really started doing it is because is of chat GPT, you know, because I, I, I would write things very powerful, but they were too emotional sometimes. They were, there was too much anger or too much happiness or it was too emotional. And then it just writes it down into a clean statement. And then that statement gets submitted. And I'm like, wow, look, 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 look at, look what happened for me submitting. Look what I just prevented. Look what I stopped. Look how that was recorded. Look how everybody got disciplined. You know, fucking amazing. Why are we so fucking lazy? And, and I think it's the school system, but I want to hear your, 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 well, you know, I think uh, from the legal perspective, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that if you wrote something in a journal, a day, a week, a month later, and then you're in front of a jury, strangers, and you're, you're petrified, but you don't think about that a day after the accident, right? Right. But you're looking at 12 people who are going to decide your fate, and you want to remember, and it, a lot of people just go back to the telenovela melodrama of like, it hurts so bad, it hurts so bad. If you tell these 12 strangers who are sacrificing their time going to your jury trial, about your pain and suffering, and you're just in tears and just saying it hurts, it hurts, you're going to get zero dollars. If you're able to pull up a journal, and then, you know, you can't submit that as evidence, but you can refresh your recollection, and you can look at it, and it's going to help you remember what you actually felt. It's going to tell a story. And ultimately, the biggest thing uh, I think humans are, are storytellers. I mean, that's how we process information. That's how we learn about how to go through the world. And... Um how you become a, a storyteller. And, and I always tell my clients that, believe it or not, um, as an attorney, all I am is, is a teacher of stories, and you're the storyteller. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to tell the jury how hard the case was on you, because if I do that, they're going to think I'm just a huckster. 
you have to tell your story and you have to tell it in a very authentic way. If they believe you, if they believe your life was stopped or, you know, if you, you know, in that Palm Springs case, your children no longer have a dad for the rest of their lives. The law will compensate for that if they believe that. Right. And it's and I, there's nothing I can say to make them believe that only you can. And so I spend a lot of times with my clients and preparing them. Uh, and they don't understand the importance of, of writing stuff down. You can use it from an evidentiary mm-hmm. perspective and in court of law. Uh, and, you know, when things happen initially, there's, you know, it's therapeutic just to get things out emotionally. Yeah, 100%. It's more well, work. Well, not only that, but there's there's the... And I, I, I've heard they were going to apply this to courts, but that's besides the point. The human memory sucks. The human memory sucks. So writing it and documenting it is, is obviously going to be a lot better because... In six months, you might remember it, but it's a complete different, you know, it's a, it's a manufactured memory, you know, and now all of a sudden, you remember the guy that hit you was wearing a yellow shirt, and now they're like, well, no, he wasn't, he was wearing a blue shirt, and it's like, well, fuck, man, like, I, I, I at that moment, you know, I thought it was this, or, you know, he was a Mexican guy, and, you know, it was a white dude, you know, whatever right. the case is, like, you know, the, the human memory is very, very flawed. So I think that's the other problem. Right, absolutely. No question about that. One thing I I use to combat that is uh, in the legal profession, there's something called legal psychodrama, where essentially what I do with the client, uh, maybe it'll be before they're deposed. So it's like maybe six months to a year later after the accident. I just have them sit down and I just tell them, you know, close your eyes, take deep breath. Tell me what you heard that day. Tell me what... You saw. do this. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And I really try to get them to tap into their senses. Because, you know, believe it or not, I think what people go through, it's all still there. I mean, I remember all my motorcycle accidents, right? But it takes a while to unlock that memory because experience and language and words and things change. Life changes. Health changes. Uh, but, you know, unlocking their ability to, and that helps them tell a story, too. Perce- you know? Perception changes. Yeah. So how did you feel? What did you smell? Uh, what did you think? What part of your body hurt? I really get them to just kind of like uh, off the cuff, go with anything they want to kind of like Jack Kerouac style, just like vomit it all out uh, to me, not being recorded. And then they can understand and unlock some of the emotions they went through because of this experience that they're basically putting their, their hands to a jury with. And I think it helps a lot. That's deep. Yeah, of course that helps a lot. A- any Anything to, any type of meditation, you know, uh, is going to be beneficial to, to recall memories and stuff like that. I heard they were going to try to uh, dismiss, I'm trying to use big court words, right? Uh, dismiss, uh, like, eyewitnesses. Again, because of flawed memory. Like, th- th- there's, like, a case building up where it's like, look, we can't rely on fucking eyewitnesses. We've been wrong so many times uh, because somebody thought they saw somebody do something that didn't happen. Well, I think uh, what you're referring to is that there has been a growing uh, area in, in the criminal justice system in criminal cases where they're allowing more expertise on the uh, unreliability, the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. And so typically you wouldn't allow that. Typically an eyewitness is an eyewitness. If they said it, they said it. It happened, right? But isn't that hearsay? Uh, well, no, no, it's not hearsay. Hearsay is when you say something, uh, say something for the truth 
of the matter asserted. So in other words, you're saying something that someone said and that it's it should be true, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Believe it, it's true. That's yeah. hearsay. Now, if you see something and you're repeating what you saw, that's not hearsay because it's not a mm-hmm. statement made out of court for the truth of the matter asserted. So hearsay is very different than that. Oh, I wish I would have known that. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but there is... Uh, interesting uh, duality as to hearsay and what you're saying about the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. They're just as fallible. A statement made out of court back at the day of the incident, that's hearsay. Uh, an eyewitness saying something back at the incident now in court is not hearsay. Well, that's a problem. And that's kind of why I think there's a growing issue or growing uh, belief in the criminal justice system that you can allow evidence to the jury to say, hey, eyewitness testimony, like it could be a fact, a human factors expert um, who basically all they do is testify as to how the human brain works when it comes to like a high stressful situation. Did you actually see this person? Well, I was dark and uh, actually I was kind of scared and uh, it was maybe half a second in distance no one's going to remember anything they saw for of half course. a second. Well, well, not only that, the, the bigger issue is, is when you have an incident happen and you get six witnesses and you have six different stories. Like, that's, that's a fucking problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, let alone there's only one witness and you only have his story. It's like, wait a minute, come on. Like, if he was, if he was standing on this, it's like the whole, you know, the two people, you know, there's a, there's a number nine here, but to you it looks like a six and to me it's a nine. Depending where I'm at, you know, what are you going to believe? So right. I heard it's 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 they're acknowledging it's a big problem. Yeah, no, that's absolutely happening. I think that's. More I guess that's where more cameras come into play, more security, more body cams, people's cell phones, everything else. Right. Well, that's helping. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most people have their phones at the ready. Yeah, now. but I bet you. Again, I, I like statistics, uh, but I bet you that's helping. Fuck up people that what the, the eyewitness. I bet you that's helping fuck up eyewitnesses. Right. Well, I saw this, and then the attorney gets it a fucking, actually, we got this fucking camera. Look, they're wrong and done. You know what I mean? Right. Well, in my experience, uh, and I don't really know why, and I've seen this enough times, and it's not just in criminal, it's in civil cases also, there are eyewitnesses who will absolutely lie for reasons that are unknown. Yeah. Prove them, prove them with actual facts. I mean, I've well, had well, that that that, I thought it was such a silly case. The uh, the black woman, uh, there was a shooting. I, I forgot what state. There was a shooting, and this black woman came in to the police station and says, uh, "I'll do the translation for sign language." And <laughs> she didn't. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> she didn't know anything, and she had like four, you know, misdemeanors, and they arrested her later. But everybody was like, she didn't do anything. <laughs> Right, right. She was making it up. <laughs> she was making it up, but why volunteer to make it up? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, and I, you know, ultimately, we <laughs> won't know what's in the yeah. in the deepest recesses of a person's psyche. Why they maybe want attention? Why they say things? But it happens more than you think. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I have this one case right now. Uh, it's a motorcyclist got killed, uh, and uh, and and so he was he had the right of way, and. The uh, it was it's against the fire department. The fire department, according to an eyewitness who saw the whole thing, saw the fire truck uh, reverse from the wrong lane of travel. So it was at an intersection, and this kid was riding his motorcycle to his mom's house, and so as the fire truck was reversing, it reversed right in front of this kid, 
And the eyewitness said, yeah, I saw it. The fire truck literally is parked in the wrong lane of traffic. The motorcycles literally lane in the wrong lane of traffic. They're both laying in the traffic in the lane where you wouldn't make a left into you would be coming out of, you know? So instead of, um, making the left from eastbound to northbound, like we're required to under the state of uh, California, uh, they reverse from the southbound lane where you're supposed to not be reversing, right? Uh, and all the evidence is there. Yeah. Uh, and eyewitnesses there. And then two other eyewitnesses come out of their car, their condo and they see the accident also aftermath. Everyone says fire trucks in the wrong lane, uh, motorcycle is in the lane that is the wrong area for the fire truck to be traveling in. Everyone agrees to that. Then there's this one guy who basically was contacted by the police who was investigating this accident because the guy's dead, right, the kid. Uh, five days later, the police calls him up, and, he, and the guy's like, I saw the accident, I saw the accident. Uh, and they ask him about it, uh, and he says, oh, I was driving my truck, and I saw the... Uh, the fire engine make a left onto the correct lane of traffic or uh, travel uh, northbound from eastbound. Uh, and that's when the accident happened. I saw it through my rear view mirror. And so they went to pose this guy. And it turns out, according to the police CAD report, the CAD report is uh, computerized automated dispatch records. This guy called the police like four hours later after the accident. After there was already on the media and TV news channels, all that stuff, right? Uh, and then we're asking him at this deposition, like, you saw the accidents? Like, yeah. Like, did you go back like every all the other eyewitnesses did and get interviewed by the police? Like, no. Like, what did you do? I went home. Uh, and when did you call the police? Oh, right after. I'm like, okay, well, this CAD report says you called like three hours later. It's like, well, my, my wife told me it was on Facebook uh, orange buzz and uh, mm. where did they where did the motorcycle hit the fire truck and I showed him the picture of the accident right and he couldn't even process it and then mm. and then what I did is actually uh, had uh, my assistant videotape how uh, or what a vehicle would see in the rearview mirror and literally nothing what he said is physically possible you would not see the accident from the rearview mirror uh, of of where this happened it's just there's like a barrier that would have blocked it the the way that the road turns makes it essentially impossible to have him tell the truth but he's still standing by it yeah why i ain't being fucking stubborn uh when you talk about this there's devastating and sadness and it's fucked up and you're doing a very noble thing uh thank you for your services and i'm, I'm sure you get fucking compensated pretty well for your services but when you talk about these cases and these puzzles, it's kind of exciting, no? I, I mean, I love it. It, it. it sounds like it sounds like again. Besides all the bad, it sounds like I don't want to say fun, but intricate. Yeah, I love the intricacy of what I do. Going I, back and, and trying to get the rear view and wait a minute, how the fuck can it, you know like different views from the building? Like it's 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 a it's like a mystery or it is a mystery. Every case is like Chinatown for me. I feel like Jack Nicholas. Yeah, yeah. Chinatown. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Or Nicholson, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I fucking love that movie. <laughs> yeah, I love it too, man. I used to have an office. I would just leave that playing all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. But that, that, that's, that sounds like so much fun. Now, tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, there, there was a moment where I was just going to court for a while. I was just dealing with something, family things. 
And uh, I, w- I would go to court and I would see attorneys and I would see these attorneys with just fucking boxes of, you know, files. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, like that sucks. Like I would not want to do that. You know, all, all day you're during fucking court, all day you're hauling files, all day you're taking calls, all day you're dealing with some kind of drama. And uh, it, I don't know, that sucks. Is that a certain type of attorney or is that most attorneys' lives? Well, I think if you're asking today, I think most attorneys aren't like that anymore. Uh, I think the legal industry has really kind of taken technology, especially after COVID and the pandemic. Uh, and literally, I, I, I've tried cases with just my uh, iPad Pro. Uh, presented evidence. I have like, you know, it could be like 50 gigabytes of documents and I can present it. So I don't think anymore it's quite like that. The Some old school attorneys... It could yeah, still I'm be like that. Like 15 years ago, too. Yeah. 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 15 years ago, there were practice models where, yeah, it would very much be like that. I mean, I've had cases where it would be carts and carts of, of paperwork because not every judge liked technology, not every courtroom had a projector. Uh, but that's, I don't think that's no longer the case. I mean, I've done trials in. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Riverside. Everyone's got technology now. Everyone has the ability to be efficient if you choose to be. Well, it's interesting because a lot of stuff was still paperwork before COVID. And and, and they were prolonging it. There was even certain businesses and certain things, uh, government stuff that you had a fax still. And when COVID hit, look how fast they made that change. Like, I have a lot of friends that are developers, and it's like all of a sudden, you know, from going and waiting in line and showing the blueprints, all this, now you're doing Zoom calls, and you're just fucking emailing them, and they're just popping it open and, and going. So it's amazing how fast when they need to make that change, they made that change. So now the legal system's like that. Well, and now with ChatGPT. I, I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> Tell me it's, your Well, I think there's going to be a huge disruption. It's not just to, like, writers and internet uh, content creators. I think it's going to be legal industry, accountants. Uh, I think there's a reason why every doctors. Tech, yeah, doctors. Did you hear the dog case? No, no. Uh, so I just heard this on the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, this guy, this guy's uh, dog was sick. He took him to the veterinarian and they did a blood test. And the doctor says, well, you know, based on these results, your, your dog's not going to make it. You know, he's got a couple weeks of that. The guy requested the the uh, blood results, and he went to ChatGPT4, uh, yeah, 4, and he put in, he goes, help me understand what these uh, blood test results mean. And then, the you know, the ask me whatever question you need from the, the results. So I start feeling, oh, nah, nah, and it starts saying, oh, well, this is this, this is that, this is that. All right, let's come up with cures, and, and what's the cause of this? Do, do, do. The guy diagnosed what it was. It was like a it was a special tick, like a, a, a lime tick or some kind of tick that's a little bit more, but there's a treatable way. He got the treatment recommendation, went to another veterinarian, got the medicine, saved his dog. Wow. Yeah, I didn't hear that. Yeah, that's awesome. This is all over the news. It was like two weeks ago. Right. Well, how about all the layoffs in the tech field? That's all Chat GPT. You know what I mean? You don't need customer well, service reps anymore. Well, look what look at Elon Musk's statement. Okay, that he he let go of uh, with the Tucker Carlson Tucker Carlson interview. You saw that one, right? I didn't see that. No, it was like maybe a week of a week ago. No, I heard of it. I'm just like I oh, can't I watch Tucker Carlson for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was like, um, you fired people from Twitter. You know, how many people did you fire? And he goes, well, we're probably at twenty percent of what we were at. He's like, you fired eighty percent of the people. And he's like, yep. And this is before ChatGPT. 
you know, this was what, two years ago or something like that. And he goes, how did you do it? And he's like, well, I guess you don't, if, if you're not supporting, you know, some bullshit message or he said something Elon Muskish, Right. And he's like, you only need 20% to, to execute. Now with chat GBT, it's even going to be crazier. Yeah. And, and the point of the doctor thing was, is if this thing saved a dog, imagine if you have a MRI um, inspector or reader, you know, and the guy looks at the results and everything. Now that's very detailed. If he misses something, but ChatGPT can pick it up, then you you don't need that MRI guy no more. You don't need the sonar guy anymore. You don't need right. Well, or you can use both. Uh, but right. yeah, you know, since right. I you know I, I deal with a lot of injuries and in, in, in in, clients and all that. What I've noticed is there are different types of doctors and calibers of doctors, and a lot of times people don't really make that difference. But there's some people who just blow my mind. Some doctors who just like are on top of their game, and you know. You, they're amazing. And then there's others that are just kind of like mills. You know what I mean? They're just going, seeing a patient for uh, 10, five minutes, in and out, in and out, in and out, as many as they can. So, uh, But I think there is going to be a disrupting force, some for the good, some for the bad, because of Chappie GPT. It's going to be it's gonna be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And, and then back to the doctors. There are doctors that only give you five, ten minutes time. You know, you're just waiting in a bigger waiting room to the smaller waiting room to a private waiting room. And then they see you for five, ten minutes and, oh, all right, get out of here, kick rocks. The other issue that I believe is is a problem is I feel, again, I, I'm just, it's just an opinion, but I feel doctors are, like, for example, if you talk about a, a pharmaceutical rep, you're like, okay, ethically, you're a fucking dick, dude, like, you know, but how many pharmaceutical reps are talking to doctors and how many doctors see how many pharmaceutical reps getting bribed or getting pushed or, hey, if you bring us, you know, if you send us this way or if you send us that way or we have a hospice or we have this, like, it, there's a lot of fucked up things that over the year you just start like, ah, okay, let me just tint and ah, this person's not, I don't know. Yeah, no, it absolutely happens, but can I quantify that other than just kind of like it happens instinct? Every once in a while. I don't think so, you know what I mean? I mean, it's unfortunate uh, but that's, you know, the way of the world. You know, there's a lot of corruption, regardless of where you're at in the world, including, you know, California. And, and, and I guess if I was to bring it back, that would be my point with ChatGPT. It would kind of eliminate that. It would help. But like, look at all these kids using ChatGPT for their homework. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, unavoidable uh, until it becomes avoidable. But the reality is that uh, technology is going to cause a lot of ripples and waves and going to destroy like it always has. Like the horse and buggy got wiped out, you know, with the automobile, like uh, the microwave killed a lot of industry. Uh, it's just a reality of technology. A technology is always going to have to force humans to adjust to what the what can now be done with technology. And I think ChatGPT is just another version of that. Yeah, the disruption. Yeah, look at streaming. I mean, man, we, we can just pause a TV show and come back to it whenever we want. Like, it's just it's, it's unbelievable. remember watching TV growing up. Oh, yeah, you had no options. You just you had to be home at a certain time. You had to tell your brother or sister to shut the fuck up because you're watching something. You can't hear it. You had to wait to pee for the commercial break. Like, yeah. Absolutely. It's wild. And now on demand. Anything. Well, look, look what we're doing now. Yeah. Like, this is fucking amazing. Oh, I love it, you man. You know, I, I get people from, you know, I get people from around the world. 
hey, man, that was, I didn't know about that. And that was good information. Or, hey, I learned this, or I learned that. I'm like, wow, man, thank you. You know, it's, it's amazing. You couldn't do this 20 years ago. No, not at all. Yet I get picked up by a big fucking station. And and I think people overall are healthier, or happier uh, compared to people in their, in, in the 80s and 90s. Especially our age. Right. Do you remember our age? Like, you're a fucking cool, hip dude. You're fucking wearing the crazy shoes. You got the crazy watch. You're fucking you're the buffest attorney I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Uh, do you remember when you would see somebody 40 that was 40 years old? Yeah, it looked like an old man. 20 years ago. <laughs> it looked like a fucking old. They were wearing a suit. They looked miserable. Fucking midlife crisis. Like, how much has that changed? Well... To some extent, it also hasn't changed. I mean, I see some colleagues my age who look like they're in their 50s or 60s, and I think it really has to do with a lot of uh, science and you know a lot of discoveries in terms of longevity and things like that. So it's changed to a much greater extent than it did back then. Uh, but I think there's still a lot of people who are just deciding to just work nonstop, regardless of their sleep, regardless of their diet, regardless of whether they're going to work out or not until like they're old and they're done. Let's just jump in. We'll, we'll, we'll end soon. Uh, let's jump into your your lifestyle, your 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 choices, your uh, your fitness, your health. When I met you on Sunday, you were in a fucking tank top, ripped as fuck. Uh, you were wearing those uh, the, what you, what? vibram five fingers, vibram five finger shoes, and uh, you were riding your EV bike. <laughs> you wear those to the courtroom. Now, tell, tell, tell me about your 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 routine. Well, so, you know, I've been following my routine for a very long time. You know, basically, I do things because I believe when, you know, epigenetics, I believe that certain lifestyle decisions will cause certain genes in our body to be activated and others not to. And so what I mean by that is, for example, I barely ever eat any sugar, uh, barely ever eat any carbohydrates. I basically stick to just a lot of protein and a lot of fat. It's like, I guess, ketogenic. Yeah, ketogenic diet. Uh, you know, I basically, I haven't taken a hot shower in years. I, you know, I stopped taking hot showers in probably 2012. Uh, really? Oh Back yeah. Then, old yeah. School. Yeah. And I just, and it's scary, but if the scariest thing you kind of beat in the morning, your rest of the day is going to be pretty quick. Yeah. So, and then I like to like lift very heavy weights. You know, I like to train. Um, What's your bench? What's your bench? Max? Well, I don't actually bench, uh, yeah. but but I'll do a lot of uh, shoulder presses. Kettlebells. And, yeah, kettlebells. And I just like, I try to do heavy uh, weight, weight that actually scares me physically, like emotionally. I'm like, I'm going to hurt myself. Uh, and I think that helps. Yeah. So I, I, I follow, I mean, I've been following this since I guess 2012. So ketogenic. So would you say... Uh, High fat, moderate proteins, minimal carbs and sugar, or would you say like carbs and fat kind of 50-50? I, I've done both, but what I think is best for me is just high protein. If high you're protein. if you're lifting, if you're not lifting, then you know the protein's just gonna get uh, converted into uh, glycogen. Uh, and it's going to be stored by your muscles and your liver, and it's not going to really do anything if you're not lifting. If you're lifting, you need the protein to basically build from the heavy weights. Yeah, that that that's that's actually been my my new conclusion right now. My new conclusion is I don't take enough protein. Oh yeah, supplements or eating or anything. So this last four days, because I've been lifting pretty heavy lately, but there's I'm just kind of stuck. Like I, you know, I'm not getting bigger. I'm not getting smaller. I'm not just stuck and i just been stuck for like two years 
Well, like, what's fasting, that? man. I also I, I do well, a lot of fasting. I, I, I do a, I do a eighteen six. Well, I'm oh. talking. I do like four or five days. Oh, you do four or five day fast. Absolutely. I, right now, I'm. Damn. Yeah, damn. it's not. It's not easy. While lifting heavy. Oh yeah, absolutely. See, and that, that, that's what contradicts me. Like it does. It sounds like it, but if you look at the research, uh, the actual fasting, especially once you get into autophagy, and it takes about uh, seventy two hours to get into a state of autophagy. Uh, you, there's so many. There's so much science regarding uh, growth hormone. Uh, increased testosterone, uh, you using your fat stores for energy, mm-hmm. uh, which is the keto. That's when you go to you to get into ketosis, right? And and that actually works. I, it's actually scary though. And the hardest part is uh, actually falling asleep. You feel scared. You feel like you're in survival mode uh, when you don't eat for like the third day. Your mind is way more sharp, and you actually get more productive. But when it comes to sleeping, it, it becomes a challenge, and I'll take supplements like uh, melatonin, um, uh, various other supplements. I watch a lot of uh, Andrew Huberman podcasts, and he has like this whole like protocol on how to uh, get better sleep, and I'll follow that because it's very difficult to sleep when you haven't eaten for like three, four days. Really? Yeah. What about supplements uh, like iron proteins uh that's in meat man that's all in meat. i know but if you're fasting for three days four days do you take any supplements like um i forgot there's like stuff that you can mix with the water and and you can kind of balance certain things out or you just go raw well no if i if i have a hard time sleeping uh, i'll take well i'll eat just salt because sodium uh and then i'll take magnesium and potassium uh, basically electrolytes you know i'll put them in water uh and that will help me get rid of that uh, feeling of like dread yeah you'll feel scared so do, do you fuck around with um liquid iv no no yeah that, that, that's that liquid iv is a um uh what do you call it electrolytes you mix okay it with water they sell at costco it's pretty good yeah it's like the only fucked up thing is like 45 calories or something right but it's sodium magnesium uh, and a few other things of that sort. And there's also uh, exogenous ketones that I take sometimes when I can't sleep. Uh, and that helps because you, you actually feel like you're eating something, but it doesn't have any uh, calories. But, it, you know, it helps. Interesting. Yeah, I'm at that point where I, I got to do the next phase where I, I either I got to I got to start fasting more or I got I'm going to have to just like eat chicken with broccoli or something. Well, there's a good app. It's called Zero. Have I you love, heard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Zero. Yeah, that, I love Zero. It's a great app. I've yeah. had it for years. Yeah, no, it, I, that's what I use. I use it. it kind of. I haven't helps been me. using it that much, but yeah. I've had it for years. You got to use it, man. Yeah, and, and your workouts, uh, mostly at home. You have uh, your own yeah. routine. Yeah, no, I have a backyard gym. Basically, I have a squat rack. I have, uh, you know, shoulder press rack. I have. Uh, I do a lot of what I do a lot of is kind of like a hit routine, high intensity interval training, but with heavy weights and then like hit the punching bag, heavy lift and then uh, do box jumps heavy and then do something really quick just to kind of work out the fast twitch muscles. Cause I think that's really neglected as most people get older. They just don't understand the importance of agility. Yeah. Especially as a motorcycle rider, you really need that. I've seen guys that I've rode with for a long time and like, they're not so agile anymore. 
You know what I think? I, I have no science to back this up, but it's just, again, my opinion. You know what I think helps with that? What's that? The Quest. Have you have you used the Quest, the, the VR? Oh, you know my son has that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not kidding. There's certain games there because you can get it so fast that you're just like, because you got to hit shit. Like, for example, there's a few workout games you just try out. It's like a $16 membership a month. You could you can quit any time. Try that. Yeah. All it's doing is, is like, throwing stuff at you so quick but you have to also say like you have to punch this or you have to kick that or knee this and and then it gets faster and faster and faster and you're just like and i'm like dude this is so good because the the only thing i can compare that to is riding a motorcycle that's what i compare it to when 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 i get on the bike and i'm looking at people's mirrors and where their tires are going and where they're turning and how, how the car's leaning and how the road's turning and this that that's what it feels like and and i believe that practicing on this is a uh, is a big advantage no i've used my, my son has a quest vr and i i, I try a boxing game <laughs> it's so fun i'll fuck you up <laughs> yeah I, I do the um i put weights like five pound weights oh wow and and then go at it i'm drenched oh, dude yeah. like 14 minutes i'm drenched i feel like a bitch i'm like 14 minutes look at me Right, but then you're really trying to avoid getting hit too. Oh, you're you're breathing; it's all fucked up. You get out of shock. <gasps> yeah, because it's easy to, to hit, but you, to actually avoid hitting or using that agility yeah. to like duck or back up is not something that I think a lot of people do in like civil society. You might have it if you don't. Uh, I recommend it. So on the quest, they have like an elastic band where you put on your head, and it comes with an elastic band. You know, right. It sucks ass. Oh, yeah. So you replace it, right? I replaced it with the one that you turn. Yeah, I got that. I got that. Okay, game. I just got that. So now I got back into the quest. It's the only thing I play that's a game, but I swear to you, I, I click on my watch or ultras, uh, and I, I, I get the calories burned. And I'm like, dude, this is fucking great. Yeah. Last thing, uh, tell me about your, your band. Uh, you know, I don't know who makes it. Oh, man. Uh, but basically, as a motorcyclist, I, I always want to be able to see if I'm following GPS on the on the phone or whatever or on the on the watch and so they put a strap on the side of your hand uh, so it's you don't have to actually look while you're riding you don't have to lift your right hand from the throttle so I can like keep th- throttling the, the motorcycle and look at what's going on in terms of which direction to go where to make a left um, and it helps with that it's you know it, it seems a little Do silly you put it over your glove when you I ride, don't wear gloves when, when I ride. Gloves, right? Yeah, I you know I don't understand. I, I like to feel the, the motorcycle more. Yeah, gloves have always been kind of a way to kind of separate the feeling of how much the motorcycle is vibrating, uh, how you know the motorcycle feels, how the road feels. It's just a little more separation than I prefer. Last thing, you have a few bikes. Which bikes are they? Uh, I got two GSs. I got a 2012 is what I rode today. And then I got a 1996 GS. I got a 1997 KTM 620. It's like a enduro. I got a 6400 Dream. Uh, I have a 1970 Moto Guzzi Ambassador. Fuck. Uh, and then I got, uh, I think that's all the motorcycles. And then I got a few electric bikes. Got that one, Huck, and uh, some, some other ones. You got me beat, man. Oh, yeah? You got me beat. Well, I, I love them, man. I can't I can't stop riding motorcycles. I you know my my partner she like doesn't like it because she's always worried that I'm not going to come back. I've been in enough motorcycle accidents to I guess give her cause for concern. But the reality is that like I'm sure you know you feel like a child, dude. It, I I feel like a a, a fighter jet pilot. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, just the excitement. It, it's the excitement and everything about it. But I feel like a fighter jet pilot, which I had a fighter jet pilot, and I was like, how would you compare a motorcycle to flying a jet? He goes, actually pretty similar. Yeah, no, I it, love it. It's, it's very three-dimensional. You know, like when you drive, it's like left, right, straight. But on a motorcycle, because you're leaning and mirrors and tucking and rolling and then your bars are changing, it's very three-dimensional. And he compared it, he says, very much well, I think a lot of people don't, non-motorcyclists do not appreciate is that it involves being active with your vestibular system. You know, the same system that helps us stand on one foot, you, you can't cheat it. You can't lie. When you're negotiating a curve on a road, you have to look with your eyes. Your eyeballs are using that part of your brain and your ears. Sense balance. How much am I leaning? How much should I lean? Where do I want to be as opposed to where I'm at? If you're in a car, you can just basically be on a phone texting I could be on my laptop yeah. and write a fucking essay. <laughs> After riding a bike, I could be in my, especially now with the Tesla, it's like, dude, come on. Yeah, but but on the bike, there's an honesty there. You have to be critical about what you can and cannot do, and if you're not, you're going to crash. Yeah, yeah. Gabriel, thank you so much. You're welcome on the podcast whenever. Uh, you ever want to just talk about something, uh, mention something, or just want to bullshit Please hit me up. Yeah. Uh, this was a great experience, and I, I appreciate you being here, man. Thank you for the invite, and I look forward to hearing it. Uh, last thing, uh, website, email, phone number. How can people get a hold of you? Uh, just my website's avinalaw.com, A-V-I-N-A-L-A-W.com. All my contact information is right there. Uh, Instagram? Yes, it's all there. It's all avinalaw.com. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thank you, sir.